On November 4th of 2021, a 16-year-old girl was trapped in her abductor's car while he was traveling through Kentucky. She began to make these strange hand gestures through the window at passing cars. She held up four fingers with her thumb tucked into the palm, then she closed her fingers around her thumb to make a fist. Many passersby thought she was waving, but one motorist recognized the hand signal from TikTok and called the police. Law enforcement was unfamiliar with the hand gesture, but they pulled the vehicle over anyway. They discovered that the girl inside had been reported missing by her parents days ago from Asheville, North Carolina. Her abductor was a man named James Herbert Brick, and they charged him with unlawful imprisonment. He also had pornographic images of a child on his phone and has been charged with possession. The girl and James Brick had been acquaintances, and Brick forced her to go on a trip with him to visit family in Ohio. Once Brick's family found out that the girl was a minor and that she was a missing person, Brick took off toward Kentucky. This girl used the hand signal for help, and it likely saved her life. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Couldn't be better, Tim. Couldn't be better, even if you paid me a million dollars. How are you today? (laughs) Well, that's great to hear. I am doing well. I am really excited to bring this interview, this story to our audience, to our listeners. We are speaking with Andrea Gunraj of the Canadian Women's Foundation, and you can find some info about them at canadianwomen.org. Lance, they helped create the signal, the hand signal for help, and it's an incredible cause and a great conversation. That's right. We reference a situation that had a positive conclusion where an individual was abducted and performed this simple hand signal out the window of a car and a uh, passing motorist recognized it from something that they had seen on TikTok, called 911, and the individual who had been abducted was successfully rescued. Our partner in crime, Jennifer Amell, joins us here. She's the one that brought this to our attention and said this would be a great topic to cover on an episode. And who better to join us? than the amazing representative of the Canadian Women's Foundation, Andrea. So it's important to spread the word about this hand signal, Lance, because as we discuss in the interview, it really takes at least two people for it to work, um, for a signal like this to work. So it's it's really interesting, and there have been positive outcomes, which is very impressive. It's really changing the world when you get right down to it. The ability to stop harm from being done on someone, it's all right here in this hand signal. It's actually quite compelling. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Thanks a lot for listening. And for more info, again, check out CanadianWomen.org. And follow the Canadian Women's Foundation on Facebook at Canadian Women's Foundation. They're on Twitter at CDN Women, FDN. And they also have an Instagram, Canadian Women's Foundation. And TikTok at CDNWOMEN. 
And if you liked what you heard here today, something that really motivates us to keep going with these episodes is a shiny star that is on the right-hand side of that fourth star. That's called the fifth star. Go ahead and give us that fifth star wherever you rate your podcasts. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And we are being joined now by Andrea Gunraj from the Canadian Women's Foundation. How are you today? I'm good. How are you folks? We're doing really well. And we just want to thank you for coming on because Jen had brought this story to our attention. We had heard about it in the news, but she was the one that said we need to get somebody on to talk about this. And we appreciate it. I know we haven't said what we're talking about yet, but I wanted to get that out of the way before I forgot that when when Jen told us that she was going to be connecting with you and, and organizing this interview, we couldn't have thought of a better person for this. And and we just wanted to uh, extend our gratitude for, for this. And we know that you're busy over over there. So yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a little while. Thank you. Thank you for thinking about us and for even delving into this topic is a really important one, especially now. Yes. Thank you so much for being here, Andrea. So you are from an organization called the Canadian Women's Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what your organization does and what your mission is? Well, the Canadian Women's Foundation, we're based here in Canada. I'm in uh, the city of Toronto, and that is, of course, a First Nations, Métis, and Inuit territory. Uh, dish with one spoon territory is what it's sometimes called. And um, the Canadian Women's Foundation, we're Canada's public foundation for gender equality, gender justice. And we support women and girls and two-spirit trans and non-binary people to move out of violence and out of poverty and into confidence and leadership. That's through funding a lot of solutions on the grassroots level in every province and territory in Canada, and also making systemic changes, policy and practice towards gender justice goals. And of course, the Canadian Women's Foundation, we've been around for now more than 30 years, and uh, our whole goals has really been looking towards many different issues, Gender-based violence is a big one. And a, we know that gender-based violence in Canada is a pandemic within the pandemic. It's a bit, been a pandemic level for many years, and I don't think the U.S. is any different. And certainly this is an issue around the world. So we're really glad for the opportunity to speak to the issues of gender-based violence and what we need to do to prevent it and end it ultimately. It has lots of different nuances towards it. And of course, the Signal for Help campaign is just one of many solutions and nuances that try to get us closer to that goal of zero people being harmed because of their gender and harmed because of who they are. I'm so glad you mentioned the hand signal for help because that is the topic for today. First of all, what is the hand signal for help and how did it come about? The signal for help for folks who don't know about it, it's just a simple one-handed signal that anybody can do. It's 
palm up, thumb in, fingers trapping the thumb. And this is something that we launched in 2020. It was in April. So in the beginning of the pandemic, because we knew at the same time that gender-based violence risk would increase at times of crisis, it often happens. And it happened around the world in Canada was absolutely no exception. We also knew that people would be using technology and video calls more often. So we thought it's a great time to release a tool to help people be able to wordlessly communicate without a digital trace. I need you to check in with me safely. And it would also be a great time for us to be able to speak to the issues at large and why we need to address it in a bigger way. And by July of 2020, so just a few months between when it was launched and July, when we did a national poll, we found that one in three people in Canada knew about the signal or had seen it being used. So it certainly struck a nerve and it certainly met a need, I believe. And of course, we saw it go around the world several times. It happened in 2020. And then when a story came out later on about how somebody used it in a very dangerous situation and was able to get the support that they needed, it really goes to show that These tools can be helpful some of the time in some circumstances for people who are in a dangerous situation. And when we talk gender-based violence, I'll just clarify, it's intimate partner abuse. It's things like sexual assault. It's things like emotional abuse. These are the things that people can face at any time. But of course, we see at disproportionate levels, it's women, it's girls, it's two-spirit, trans and non-binary people. They're being targeted because of their gender, because of gender injustice, because they don't get the rights and respect that they deserve. So we have to have solutions that go on the person-to-person level, the the home level, the individual level, the workplace level, the community level, and it's got to go all the way up to policy and practice, all the way up to community and society and culture change. And the signal for help, it's been very powerful around culture change because people are understanding that they have to recognize the signs of violence, and they also have to be able to respond to the signs of violence in a way that is non-judgmental. That's why we're moving towards not only speaking to the signal for help, but also what people can do to be a great signal responder. And for us, that's really important that you respond to somebody without judgment, that you're proactive and you tell your family, your friends, your workplace, your community members, I'm going to be here. I'm going to support you. I'm going to know the three places that you can go for help. I'm going to know that you will lead the way and tell me what you need. I'm going to be there for you. And of course, if you see the signal for help being signed out into the world, that you can know that probably an appropriate response would be calling 911, would be calling emergency services. But most often people tell people that they know and trust when they're going through gender-based violence. So it's a process towards getting help. It's that letting that person lead the way who's using the signal so that you're there for them because they are the experts on their own safety. Well said and, and well done on creating this hand signal. I'm curious about the the actual like mechanics of the signal itself. There must have been a conversation within your organization much like the way you determine like a brilliant logo for a company that's so simple but means so much. Was that conversation present in your organization? Because you had to come up with a signal that didn't look like a signal that didn't look like something that would maybe alert somebody who had taken someone captive. Like you referenced that story that recently happened. It almost looks like a wave, but it's different. It's just different enough where it's clearly a signal for someone who knows it. What were the inner workings there even coming up with that? Oh, that's such a great question. That's an excellent one. I think we we had a number of conversations, honestly, because that was also a concern. Yes, that we wanted to make sure that we weren't 
reproducing something that was already being used. And it was really important for us as well to make something that you could do in a very low key way, kind of just do it close to your body in, in, in case somebody is looking over your shoulder. We know people who are in violent homes are often closely monitored. And we also wanted to make sure that we were respecting different signs and signals out there. So we spoke to folks who are in the deaf community who might use American Sign Language to communicate. We wanted to make sure we're not creating kind of something that's going to create confusions. But honestly, for us, what was really important to recognize and promote along with the signal itself, the signal doesn't stand for anything. It's contextual. So you have to follow up with the person to find out what they need. It doesn't mean call emergency services, call 911. They That might not be a safe thing to do, depending on the circumstance. So it was really important for us to, at the same time that we're promoting that there's a signal that may be helpful for some people some of the time, that you also, as the responder, need to be sensitive and reach out to that person in a low-key way, say, hey, I'm here. Yeah, I just reach out to me when it's, it's good for you and let that person tell you, this is what I need from you. So it's really important to recognize that signs and signals, they're only as good as the response that they get, and they're only as good as people recognize it. And it's important that it's not signing anything in particular. It means I need you to check in. I need you to be there for me. And that's a nuance that sometimes is hard to, to understand. We want something that's a slam dunk and that we we just, oh, I know what to do exactly. And I see it and it's perfect. No, but there's no sign or signal that's going to be perfect. What is important is us standing up alongside a survivor of violence, letting them lead the way, recognizing the nuance in their unique circumstance and uh, being ready to, to be there in the journey to safety. And Again, this particular story that makes the news and oftentimes the stories that make the news are going to be the kind of most kind of wow cases where somebody saw something out in the wild and were able to respond right away and call 911 and and swoop in. And I'm really happy that that happened, but I'm just mindful for as many situations that do make the news, there's going to be those quiet situations behind closed doors that you'll never hear about. And you have to be really mindful that for every kind of one story, there's going to be 10 stories that don't make the public a consciousness, but they're still important. That person deserves safety and they deserve our support. So yeah, I mean, that was all part of the thinking process. And certainly people have had other campaigns out there. This is not the only campaign out there. There's the campaign where it was a black dot on a a fingernail and it was something that you could show somebody maybe in a manicure situation that, hey, I'm, I'm being harmed. I need your help. There was another campaign where people could call. I think it was a US based campaign where people could call ordering a pizza. But what it means is that I am in immediate danger and I need your support right now. I'm with a violent partner. And there's tons out there. They all have their utility and they're all important. But we have to recognize that the campaigns and these signs and signals, they are what they are. What are we doing to respond right and be proactive so that somebody doesn't even have to use that, that we are there for people and they know that they can get a good non-judgmental response from us? Yeah, they're really all great causes. And ultimately for all of them, for the signal to work, it needs more than one person to recognize it. So how did you go about tackling that challenge to create a new signal and to spread the word so well? Well, it was so wonderful to see people take it up and use it and remix it and work it in their own communities. We at the Canadian Women's Foundation, we have incredible partners in every province and territory in Canada. And we did not expect this level of of kind of viralness. So that was a real pleasure to see people using it and finding it useful. 
We also uh, really made sure that we made it available for people to use however they want to. So like there's a toolkit on our website, canadianwomen.org, and people downloaded that and used it on their social media. It really was a viral, a truly viral campaign. And it was social uh, sharing. So you saw TikTok. We didn't even have a TikTok channel when we put this out and people used it. So like shout out to the young people on TikTok who are making it happen and recognizing this issue and want to do something. That's awesome. We also um, got a lot of news coverage right away because this question about increased rates of gender-based violence was a really big concern and story. So we saw in Canada, of course, the risk in gender-based violence increased in the beginning of the pandemic. It was something where people were trapped at home with their abusers, um, trying to negotiate that, not necessarily knowing that shelters and crisis lines were still open for them. And maybe not even safe enough to be able to call those services. And then we also saw that one in 10 women were concerned about violence in the home in the beginning of the pandemic. And then plus we saw that there was increased calls to crisis lines, but then in some areas, a strange quiet in terms of crisis lines because people were not safe enough to even call. So that was a big story in Canada. And I'm sure that it was also a story that went around the world in different places. We saw bumps in gender-based violence, confirmed bumps in gender-based violence in places like China, in places like France. Uh, This was something that was really confirmed. And I'm sure there's many jurisdictions in the U.S. that also saw that dynamic playing out. So it was a big need. And I really am sad that we need a signal for help. And you said that there was an increase during the pandemic and a strange quiet because some of those who were abused were not even able to pick up the phone to call for help. But I'm wondering when and how you can get those statistics, because obviously you don't get them until they're too late. Yeah, absolutely. That's the issue with this. It's it's kind of the hidden pandemic within the pandemic. One of the things that uh, really gave us that hint service providers. We work with service providers who do gender-based violence intervention and prevention all over Canada. And they were the ones who often raise the red flags first before you can really get those um, kind of self-report studies that happen um, after the fact. One of the things that we also saw as well, too, that was just confirmed this week is that femicide, so murders of women by intimate partners, had increased in 2020 and 2021, two years of an increased trend in Canada. Again, there's lots of research that needs to be done to see why and how and what this means, but it is a disturbing indication that there's an issue here because we've already had a high rate of femicides before the pandemic. We saw every six days, one woman was killed by her intimate partner on average in Canada. And that has gone up to like about every 2.5 days now in 2020 and 2021. So it's just an indication that when a disaster or a crisis happens, things like gender-based violence tends to go up. But that's not to say that violence is ever inevitable. People don't have to choose violence in their relationships. People do not have to be violent. And there's so many people who are not violent to their intimate partners in a time of crisis. What we're not doing enough of is prevention ahead of time before crisis moments. And this is why the foundation, we're talking a lot about what does it mean to shockproof our communities so that when there is a disaster or a crisis that you don't see this automatic spike in gender-based violence that we saw not only with the pandemic, but we also saw in natural disasters, for instance, and for those types of crises around the world. This is a research that that's being done and that's been proven over and over again, where when there's war, when there's climate disaster, when there's some kind of a pandemic crisis, the spike happens. The spike does not have to happen. We have to prevent it. 
And I, I really want to stress that, you know, sometimes we view gender-based violence as something that's inevitable. That's, oh, that's just part of being a woman. Absolutely not. It doesn't have to be. It's things that we have to do ahead of time. And we have to um, really think about how do we fund the solutions that actually work. And I just don't believe that we've done it yet. Certainly in Canada, we haven't done it to the degree that we need to. And this is what will be the challenge for the next year as we're moving into another year where we might very well see this pandemic linger on more variance and more risk and more lives lost. And that's just unacceptable. Those are some pretty sobering facts, but I think it's a great point that you make about prevention rather than just reacting to to a crisis. One of the things I find most fascinating about the hand signal for help is that oftentimes um, you hear social media or you hear things like TikTok or Instagram, and you think that these are opportunities for danger for young people, that they have exposure to strangers, that they can get themselves in situations that they don't understand or can't control. But what you guys have done has taken that tool and used it to prevent danger. And I find that so admirable that you were able to see a position in which to to actually use this for good. Yeah, I mean, you have said it. These social media platforms absolutely do have their dark side. And there's lots of um, evidence, a lot of research about how people use social media in ways to harm, to perpetuate hate crimes, to perpetuate sexism, misogyny, for sure. But I think that we've seen it in a lot of different ways that it's got its positive way of communicating what other platforms can't communicate and the unspoken stories. We saw it in Me Too, for instance. I think that was a really powerful example of how people were able to use social media where they were silenced in other ways. There were lots of people who said, this happened to me, Me Too, I never said anything. Been raped, never reported, for instance. That was all part of it. And people were using um, social media platforms to say, I did not get justice in one way or another. I couldn't even express it. I was judged. I was shot down. And I'm saying it now, Me Too. So I think The Signal for Help is kind of an interesting example, I think, in that spirit of using social media in a way to address something that is under addressed that we don't we know isn't taken seriously enough. We know we haven't invested in and done enough on. And people are finding a lot of inspiration in that and finding that they can be involved and be a part of the solution. So I think that we have to look at the positive side of of that as well and harness it. At the same time, not taking the pressure off of making these spaces safer, making digital spaces safer for women, for girls, for anybody who tends to be marginalized and oppressed in these spaces. So we're talking about prevention and the reaction and the education and supporting each other on social media, even having you come on this show to talk about this. And, you know, we're obviously supporting you and your and your cause and your organization. How do we get out of our own echo chambers, though? How do we, how do we then communicate all of this to the people who are perpetrating this? Because I would love to get somebody on who is an abuser, who would talk, you know, about the reasons why they abuse their the person in their life. But they, they're not coming on. They're not going to come on and talk about that and say, well, it's totally justified. The Patriots lost the Super Bowl. Or like, I was mad, you know, but that's not going to happen. How do we take that message that we're talking about here and put it in the perpetrators' heads and, and actually educate them? Oh, that's a really excellent question. I think you're right to seat the responsibility for abuse 
in the realm of the abusers. I think that's so important for us to do. I'd like to take a step back, though, because I feel that while that's a very important question and while, while we have to look at supporting survivors as a primary I often look to the people around these violent relationships. Those of us who know something might be happening have a sense that perhaps a friend or a family member is in a tough situation, and we tend not to say anything. We might feel that we're going to make things worse. We might feel that we would get in trouble for saying something. And I think that that's a big population. That's a big group of people. There's so many of us who have seen violence happen and didn't respond the way that we should have. I'm thinking very personally about a family member that I saw um, get yelled at really aggressively and threatened by her husband. And I just froze. I didn't say anything. Now, I was pretty young at the time, but I knew what violence looked like. And I knew that that was uh, indicative of uh, lots of different forms of violence that were happening far beyond my purview. And I said nothing and I did not follow up in a meaningful way. I didn't have the tools to do that and I didn't know what to say. And I really regret that. And I know that there's a lot of people who are just like me. We want to do something, but we just don't have the tools. We don't have the confidence and the competency. We just did a a poll to kind of figure this out a little bit more. And we found that 64% of people in Canada know a woman who's been physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, but only one in five feel really confident to follow up in a supportive way for somebody facing physical abuse. And one in six feel very confident in following up with somebody who's experienced sexual or emotional abuse. So you see this gap between people who they know this violence is happening, but they don't know how to respond. That's what I'm really interested in right now. I think that we actually have to build up the competency and the confidence around us And I believe that it's a cultural issue. As I said, we've accepted this violence as a a norm. And whether or not we would even frame it like that, it's something that we see, oh, it's it's kind of inevitable. It's going to happen. It's between him and her. It's between them. And we don't necessarily feel our role. But what we do is actually functionally enable this to happen. And we functionally enable it to happen behind closed doors in an silent way. So what would it take for us to actually change our culture of stigma? around that to a culture of support, where we're actually very competent in saying, hey, if you're going through a tough time, you just let me know. I'm going to be there for you unconditionally. I'm going to support you without judgment. I'm going to be alongside you because I love you. And that is a message, I think, to somebody being abused, yes. And you can definitely take that one step further and think about what does that mean to change our culture where we're calling violence out in a way that pulls people in and gets them the support that they need. So your question about what does that mean for abusers? I think there's a next step here, perhaps, that we could take where we're giving people the confidence and the competency to say, hey, you did something that was violent and I'm not okay with that but I want you to get the support that you need. I want you to get counseling. I want you to get maybe the the accountability that you need, or I'm just going to call 911 or whatever the case may be. What is the right response in the right circumstance? But I know that the the culture of silence and stigma, that's the big part of the problem, I think, that we haven't addressed enough. We often look to survivors, even the signal for help. We look to survivors and say, know this signal and use this signal if you're going through a difficult situation. I think that's part of the solution. But if we stop there, we're doing a disservice. We actually have to look at the culture of acceptance around this abuse. And that's where the signal responders work. That's what we're trying to do. 
In Canada, you text signal to 540-540, you get a signal responder's guide in your phone so that you can respond and just know some like quick tips so that you can respond if you see the signal for help. We have signalresponders.ca. You can go and you can sign up to go on a learning journey over the next 18 months because a guide is not enough. You need to practice. You need the opportunity to get a chance to talk about this with people who are just like you, who are struggling as well, too, to figure out a good response. So this is just kind of the first step in the right direction of changing this culture of stigma that we have to a culture of support. And I would argue with every single one of us, us freezing up and not knowing what to do and feeling nervous, that's totally natural. I get it. But we cannot stop there. The rates of violence are too high. The risk is too high. The stakes are too high. People are losing their lives. So it's about time that we get a little brave, a little competent, a little confident, and start doing this kind of stuff that we can do because we know people don't call police. They don't call 911. There's a lot of reasons why you can feel really unsafe in doing that. You can feel like it's not the right response for you. Cool. You got to be able to go to your friends and family and get a good response. Can you tell us about the teenage girl who was saved in Kentucky this past November? Yeah. So that story really blew us away, honestly. So we heard about a young woman who in a kidnapping situation used the signal for help out of a moving car. She might have learned it on TikTok. And of course, again, shout out to the people sharing it on TikTok and doing what they got to do to get it out there. And somebody else in another car saw it being used and actually followed up, called 911, followed the car and made sure that there was an intervention there and she got the help and support that she needed. She was reported missing a few days before. Now, this is really interesting to me for a number of reasons. First of all, I'm so sorry that this even happened in the first place. My heart dropped when I heard a young person was in this dangerous situation. So number one, awful. Number two, it's just so incredible that she was able to use it out of a moving car and somebody was able to recognize it. So uh, as I was mentioning, a signal is only as good as it's recognized and responded to. And really amazing that that person who saw her in distress. So I also heard that perhaps it wasn't the signal necessarily alone. He saw that she was in distress. She was crying. She was upset. And he responded to that. It goes to show, oh my goodness, this person is just a hero for doing that. And I'm so thankful that he was able to respond. I wonder how many of us, if we saw somebody crying in distress, signaling to us, if we would even have the wherewithal to say, oh my goodness, I should respond. I I, I just wonder, I wonder that for even myself. So I was just so thankful for that example that that person was able to see it. And he did feel like I I need to take this on. I need to make sure that she's okay. And uh, I just feel like there's so much for us to learn from that. There's that bravery that I mentioned. There's that competency that I mentioned. There's that idea that I can do something. I'm not so sure, but I'm going to try my best and I'm going to put that person first. And I wonder, did that person, they were going to be late for work. They're going to be late for their appointment. They still did what they needed to do. So it just goes to show that we can respond, that we can intervene. We can make a difference. But we have to feel like we we have that role and we have to feel like we know what to do and we have to feel 
like capable of doing it, you know? And again, that's where the signal responder idea comes in. You got to be a great signal responder. And there's other campaigns like this. There's bystander campaigns, very similar. This idea of giving people the confidence and the competence to be able to do something and feel like even if I'm feeling uncomfortable, I'm going to push through and I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to try to support. It is a bit of a risk, but I'm going to try. And I just you know, want to shout out to all those campaigns out there and all those efforts that I see people doing this great work. It's all part of our kind of culture shift and culture shift is possible. And what is the worst that would happen? Because I think one of the biggest hangups for most people, including myself, probably just speaking for myself, is that what if I'm wrong? What if I see something like that and it's not what it is and then I've caused some sort of turmoil in somebody's life and they have to say, well, that wasn't a signal. I was brushing something off the window in the car or something. Like, But, but then like after you go through all of those considerations, how long has it been since you saw that and then you've moved on to something else in your life? Like that's the danger of just like what happens in this world happens so fast. You just move to the to the next thing. What, what, what would possibly, what do you tell people when they have that question? Like, well, what if I'm wrong? What a fair question. And I think we have to recognize where most often we would see these kinds of signs and signals of abuse. And it's not even the signal for help in and of itself. It's any sign or signal for abuse. We would see it most often among somebody that we know and trust. It's going to be more rare, I'll venture to say, to see it out in the world. And out in the world, if somebody makes a signal that you're thinking, oh, they need help right away, calling 911, It might feel like a bit of a risk, but it's actually a a fair thing to do. But I venture to say that most often you're going to see a friend or a family member or a coworker that you're going to get a sense this person needs support. So I always say to folks, if you are wondering that, you know, what, what should I say? What should I do? It's no harm to go to that person and say, hey, I just wanted to check in with you and make sure you're okay. I was wondering, and if you need any support, you just come to me anytime. I will make the time for you. You do it when you're comfortable. I'm going to put you first and I'm not going to judge you no matter what. I'm not going to judge you. And then know in the back of your mind, three services or supports that are community-based that you can refer this person to. And I'm thinking shelters, because you can call a shelter and just talk to a counselor. You don't have to actually be there to access the services. Crisis lines, there's lots of great crisis lines out there that are open 24-7, all languages, all communities, excellent services. And there might very well be a prevention or intervention service that's beyond that, that addresses these issues very well. If you know those three services, you're 90% more than what other people know out there in the world. And if you would just do that proactively, even not even waiting for somebody to be in a dangerous situation or for you to have any feelings around this, if you proactively tell your friends and family and you make it known that you will be there and you won't judge them. And you think about the way that your posture is around them when it comes to gender based violence. Many times people's posture is such that you might think, "Ah, if I say this to this person that this is happening to me, I'm just going to get a terrible response. They're going to feel they're going to blame me. So often that's what we do. So for those of us around people who we know might be experiencing violence to have a different posture, to not say judgmental things, to say, oh, that's a difficult situation. Uh, I, I feel like that person needs support. And I would be that supportive person. I would try to be that supportive person. I think that's very powerful. We haven't done that. We'd like to think of ourselves as people who would do that. And I believe in positive intent. I believe most people are positive in in terms of the way that they feel. But have they done those simple steps? Mm, Probably not. 
That's where we start. And I think those are simple places that we can start. And the risk is very low when you take it from that stance. Great. Thank you. Are there other instances that you know of that are public and maybe were covered by the media where this hand signal has saved someone from danger? I've heard of a couple of other situations. So before, I think it was probably March earlier this year, somebody did come to us at the Canadian Women's Foundation and said, I saw the signal being used in a Zoom call. And I was able to follow up with the person who used it, and they were able to get the support that they needed. They were going through family violence. It was a young person going through family violence. So we heard about that early on. We also heard about a couple of other cases, I think both in Spain, where the signal was used in a dangerous situation. And both times that person was able to get the support that they needed. And I believe both instances were a woman experiencing partner violence. So it's a good indication that the signal is being used. In these cases that make the news, of course, it's more of a public way, but um, it makes me wonder how many times is it being used on a one-on-one call, for instance, or on a one-on-one situation where you're talking with somebody and you might see it happen. So it's a good indication that it is quite universal now. um, And it's something that we have to learn how to respond to, at least be able to recognize and be able to say, okay, I, I know what to do. And how difficult is it to communicate all of this message with with family members, like like a child who knows it, that their mother is being abused? What do you possibly say to a child who, who knows that? And how do you continue a relationship or do you continue a relationship within the family structure if that if you know that that's happened? It's so interesting because ever ever since this story broke of this uh, young woman using it in Kentucky, some people have reached out to me. It's been really interesting. A lot of parents have told their, their children, their young people, hey, here's a, a little signal I want you to learn. And if you're never in a dangerous situation, you can use it. You don't have to use it for me. You could use it with somebody else. So people are doing kind of what they need to do to educate their young people and their children about these things. And I think it's really important for people to learn this. It's really important for perhaps people to learn it in school. It's all part of perhaps a healthy education curriculum that people might learn in school, part of a consent curriculum, all around topics of gender-based violence. And in Canada, that's something that I think we still need to do a lot of work on in our schools. Um, It's very different from school to school, territory to territory, uh, province to province. So um, there's some work to do to make sure that young people have access to it there. But, you know, in that circumstance where it's teaching a young person to use it and you know that something violent might be happening and do you continue to support them? Oh, yes, absolutely. But you do it in a way that you're prioritizing that relationship. I think it's so important for us to do these things within a relationship context because trust is everything. Somebody may not say right away that something bad is happening. They may not be ready to go down that path with you. But if they know that you are there for them, that I think you can continue supporting them as you do in your relationship. And when they're ready, they will come to you. I do think that, you know, sometimes we go to this place of all or nothing. I've got to do everything or do nothing. I don't think it's that that black and white. I actually think it's somewhere in between. And you can always remember that isolation breeds this violence and silence breeds this violence. So what helps is when you're there for somebody and you are that force that steady force within that person's life. Um, And I believe that for people who are going through violence, and I believe that also for people who are perpetuating violence, how will they know what they're doing is wrong? How will they know that 
they can get help from somebody like you if they recognize what they're doing is wrong. How will they know if they're just cut out of the community? There's so much research that's on a lot of different areas around the psychology of it and the sociology of it. What creates violence? It's often feeling that you are outside of a community, you don't have support, and therefore you don't value your own life and you don't value other people's lives. There's tons of research around this. So if we take it from that lens, pushing people out and not being ready to get involved and get get just down in the details of somebody's life perpetuates this. So if we want to have safer communities and safer homes... We have to prioritize relationship and we have to be there. And if you take one look at the uh, CanadianWomen.org, that's the website for Canadian Women's Foundation. Everything you're saying is so evident and so meaningful. You have a section about inclusive leadership, which I think speaks to what you were just saying. How do you implement the sense of purpose and meaning in, in someone within their community? Can you talk a little bit about that inclusive leadership that's part of your organization? Well, you know, inclusive leadership is a big part of our pillars. We have and out of violence, out of poverty, into confidence, into leadership. And leadership really does matter. And for us, it's so important for us to build up programs that support people to lead in their communities in positive ways, particularly in feminist ways. And what is feminist? Feminism is making sure that there's human rights, making sure that everybody gets the rights and respect that they deserve, not the least women, girls, trans, transparent, non-binary people. We know there's lots of barriers that people have to overcome and they need support to overcome and they need systemic change to do that. So that's really important for us. I mean, we take it from a very holistic stance of positive change. We start at the grassroots level, of course, the the level of people just day to day getting what they need to be those leaders that they want to be, to lead in the way that they want to lead. And we also try to make sure that every barrier is taken away. So that's part of the thought leadership work that we do. That's part of the policy change and the practice change that we try to uh, push for and, and work with our partners around that. It's a big conversation. And I think sometimes that we we sometimes feel kind of stuck in, in the way things are because it feels like it's so big that we can't start. But I would really venture to say that it's often your own sphere of influence is really important. Where are you a leader in your own life? And we all have our areas of influence. We may not feel that we have a lot of influence, but we do have some. I have family and friends who might very well listen to me and they might not listen to somebody else because they trust me. What can I do to leverage there? I have a workplace that I do have some level of um, management support. How do I make sure that policies and practices are in, in place to make sure that gender justice is being achieved as much as possible? Uh, You know, think about the communities, your faith communities, for instance, that you might be a part of. I think this is really important. I'm part of a faith community myself and really trying to make sure that the faith community has good policies and practices to address abuse and that people who are often doing counseling, maybe even just one on one supports that they know where they can go to refer somebody to a service. You know, this is really important for us to do in our own lives. So even taking the time to reflect. The areas that you have some influence, the areas that you might have some positive leadership is really important. And, uh, you know, the Signal for Health campaign is one area, but there's lots of different areas that you can look at when it comes to gender justice. It's such a big topic. And certainly we can try to leverage what we have, our relationships and our influence that we have within our own spheres. And I really feel like, you know, that's the place to start. And certainly you go beyond that. You think about your voting. Who do you vote for? You think about how you're holding your leaders accountable. They are leadership. Leadership should be accountable to you. And technically, 
that's what our votes are all about. So are we asking our leaders, what are you doing to address something like gender-based violence? What are you doing to address things like the gender pay gap that is so persistent and taking forever to change? What are you doing? And I would like to see results. And if I don't see results, I will vote accordingly. That's another area of influence sometimes we don't think about, but it's there and we need to exercise it. So many well-articulated points around this issue, Andrea. Thank you so much. I'm wondering where people might be able to go for additional resources on education. And is there a way to help support your mission at Canadian Women's Foundation? Absolutely. One of the things I will mention again, you can go to signalresponder.ca. When you go there, you can sign up and right away you'll get a guide, a signal responders guide that gives you just practical tips and tools on how to address the signs and signals of violence, whether or not they're related to the signal for help per se, but certainly it helps with that. Um, Also, when you sign up there, you'll get tools, more tools and tips And a whole training course, access to a training course that we'll do over the next 18 months. I'd encourage people to do that because I think, uh, again, learning doesn't happen. Competency doesn't happen just one off. You have to take the opportunity to learn more. And so many of us want to do something, but we don't know how. So that's one thing. The second thing that I would also say as well, too, if you go to CanadianWomen.org and you would like to donate, please donate to the Canadian Women's Foundation. Uh, We do a lot of different important programs. We fund organizations on the ground doing this work, and they're really the front line. They're the front line when it comes to things like gender-based violence. They need to have every resource to do the stuff that they do well, because people go to them more often than they go to any institution or any authority. And we have to remember A lot of people don't know this. We fund police, prosecution, and prisons far more to the billions, to the trillions, far more than community-based solutions, but it's the community-based solutions that often are in the position to prevent and intervene in situations of violence. And remember that the legal system can only deal with things, something after something has already happened, after a trauma has already happened. Who prevents? It's these community-based solutions. So think about how you can support even your local community-based solution when it comes to gender-based violence. It's worth it. And then the other thing that I would say as well, too, you know, if you would just like to follow us, listen to our podcast all right now, what we're always talking about solutions. We're talking about those new stories that you hear and you wonder, why is this still happening? What, what needs to happen next? All right now, what? Find it wherever you uh, listen to your podcast content. Come on the journey with us. You, there's there's lots of ways that you can get involved and learn more and support. How can we communicate the importance of this to uh, to helping your organization for people over the border? People over the border will say like, "Well, I feel like I can't help that because I'm not in Canada." What's your what's your response to that? Well, my response is, if you do want to support the Signal for Help campaign, you can absolutely, no matter where you are in the world, you can. Do digital giving. You can sign up digitally. It's it's a completely digital campaign. So you can still get involved. And I would encourage people to do that. But I also think that it's so important for us to support our local solutions. So know the local solution in your community, in your neighborhood. I would start there. And you can always support with your time, your treasure, your talent. I would also say as well, too, that there's Funding, there's a lot of funding networks in, in the U.S. that I'm aware of. I'm aware of the Women's Funding Network. They're a wonderful partner. They're the best. And they are our U.S. partner. That's like kind of I see them as our sister organization. We're the one in Canada. They're the one in the U.S. And they've been so supportive of the Signal for Help campaign. Like they really got it all over the states. 
Um, so Women's Funding Network, I have to give them a real good shout out. They're amazing. And they are with a network of a lot of community-based organizations all over the country in every region of the U.S. So I would also say, yeah, if you're in, in the U.S., check them out, Women's Funding Network. Very cool, because that just goes to the co-elevation of all of it. It doesn't really matter. This pandemic in the pandemic, it transcends boundaries, you know, territorial boundaries. If you're supporting one in one country, inevitably that's going to either influence or inspire or directly support another one in another country. Yeah, this is a global movement and gender justice not being achieved anywhere means gender justice is not where it needs to be here. So I love that point. That's a great place to kind of have us remembering we're in a global environment. We're in a global world. If one of our our founding mothers says, if all of us haven't made it, none of us have made it. And I really take that. That's such an important piece for us to remember. We have to think about what other people are doing. And certainly in the pandemic, we've learned what we do individually impacts everybody around us. So just same way with everything else, same thing with gender-based violence and safety and the pursuit of people making sure that they get every support that they deserve. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but... Feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles. From bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's K-N-I-X dot com.